Good afternoon Advance Hire and today we're just going to do a final send-off for that of the Great Terror particularly because it's something now that is being debated amongst historians and scholars regarding that of the rise of external fascist threats as a driving force for the purges. So particularly what I want us to start to have a look at just consolidating our understanding and focusing on some key pressing points today is the fact that when it comes to the aim and objective to evaluate the dangers today of the Soviet state faced in the 1930s, how these threats were used by Stalin to justify the purges, looking at the old Bolshevik senior party leaders, managers in the industry, and with the emergence of fascism in Germany and the growth of militaristic aspiration in Japan, the belief that there was a distinct threat by hostile powers in the state by the mid to late 1930s were strengthened. We've had a look at in terms of alleged saboteurs, having a look at terror state, but particularly our focus is on external fascist threats today and we covered a wee bit about this when it came to that of the purges in the army. So particularly things I just want to wrap up today with is how in 1933 that we have Adolf Hitler has become Chancellor of Germany and he is ferociously anti-communist as a politician. In 1935, we have German announced the rearmament to that of their nation, breaking the Treaty of Versailles as well as the Locarno Pact and Treaty, and Western powers are starting to appease Hitler. 1936, that Germany has reoccupied the Rhineland, and Western powers are again appeasing Hitler. To use that famous quotation by Lord Lothian, remember he is only invading his own back garden. In 1936, we have the Spanish Civil War has broken out. The Soviet Union aids that of the Republicans against the Nationalists who have received Nazi and Italian aid. And this is when Hitler is setting up the Condor Legion and having a look at bringing forth the bomber, using the Luftwaffe too as well. And by that of 1939, we have three fascist powers in Europe. And it's around about this time from 1937 onwards that Stalin is quite wearisome about Soviet Union being attacked and a war being ensued. 1936 is an important year as we have the anti-Comintern pact signed with Italy, Japan and Japan to counter communist influence. In 1937, Japan invaded China and the Soviet military aid is sent to help the nationalist Chinese. And in 1938, we have border clashes between the Red Army and Japanese forces in that of Lake Kasan. So we're going to focus on some of those two points today and wrap up here today the arguments for the Great Terror. I know how much the German people loves its fear. I should therefore like to drink to his health. Stalin remarked on the 24th of August 1939. Stalin's view of fascism has some very peculiar features. It had of course long since been denounced as the worst form of bourgeois rule and analysed as a form of control of the state by monopoly capitalists. But though fascism thus became a very evil word, the effects of this considerably diluted by the method of calling the social democrats fascists too social fascists. In the resulting confusion, 
the German Communist Party had been ordered against its will to direct its main force against not the Nazis, but the Socialist Warsaw Coalition governments, to the degree of Prussian referendum of 1931 and the transport strike of 1932, to which the Nazis and Communists actively cooperated against the moderates. When such tactics resulted in the victory for Hitler, and Hitler himself remarked that he would always turn a communist into a Nazi but could not do the same of a social democrat, the crushing of the German Communist Party was represented. According to the new Stalin style as a victory, the new concept of Hitler as the icebreaker of revolution, the last desperate stand of bourgeoisie whose failure would lead to the collapse of capitalism came into vogue. When it became apparent that Hitlerism was not going to collapse, a conclusion Stalin seems to have reached at the time of the Nazi purge in June 1934, Stalin was now inhibited by doctoral reasons from coming up to arrangements with the new dictator. The difficulty was rather than Hitler appeared to be quite intransigently anti-communist. As Hitler built up Germany's military and economic power, Stalin began a complex approach. Hitler's evident military threat could be blocked in two ways, by force or by agreement. If force was to be necessary, then a powerful anti-fascist alliance needed to be built. If agreement were possible, it could be best achieved from strength. So for the mid-1930s, Soviet foreign policy and common turn tactics were directed to creating a system of party and state alliances against the German power. In 1936, following the shift in foreign policy orientation, foreigner Goromsar Litovo, long an advocate of alliance with the West, received every sign of support. Leaving a discussion, Stalin put his arm around Letovo's shoulders and said that now it appeared they could agree. Letovo answered, not for long. It had been suggested that one of Stalin's main motives for the purge, and especially for the army purge, was to give the freedom of manoeuvre which finally produced the Nazi-Soviet Pact of 1939. The old pre-Nazi pro-German orientation had not been an ideological one. Alliance even very reactionary, Germans had an ideological one. Germany against the have powers was in principle long since accepted by the army and most of the party. Only when Nazism was seen as an overt threat to Soviet Union did a change come. With the popular front campaigns of the Comintern, the Franco-Soviet Pact and so forth, but when it came it was warmly accepted. The rightists moved in country and partly saw in state and party alliances the possibility of opening to the right a reconciliation with democracy. Meanwhile, Trevetsky and soldiery worked enthusiastically a true modernisation of the army to make it capable of facing not merely the Poles or Turks, but also the highly military potential of a mobilised Germany. But for Stalin, the fronts and packs were matters not of conviction, but of calculation. As long as any qualms were to be able to make themselves felt in the Communist International, Stalin's freedom of action to come into an agreement with the Germans was limited. The ideological conceptions, the socialist sentiments, were disrespected firmly on anti-fascist lines. As far as the international field was concerned, the crushing of all independent, undisciplined motivations was necessary if Stalin was to make the best bargain. Prisoners were predicting the Nazi-Soviet Pact in 1937 on the basis of the categories being arrested in particular, the foreign communists. When the pact came in August 1939, the effects of years of hard organisation and propaganda work in the common turn became visible. 
all over the world with negligible and temporary exceptions. The Communist parties accepted the switch and began to explain its necessity, sometimes in the later editions of papers, which the same day had been urging a fight against Nazism, only individuals amongst the leaderships dropped out. Even when it came to the Party Congress in 1934, Stalin had hinted at the alternative policy of agreement with Germany. Of course, we are far from enthusiastic about the fascist regime in Germany, but fascism is beside the point. If only because fascism in Italy, for example, has not kept the USSR from establishing the best of relations with that country. A pessimistic estimate was presented to Stalin in the AMKVD Foreign Department in August 1935 about the strength of elements of Germany favouring settlement with Russia. But the officer making the report noted it made no impact on Stalin's feeling that that accord could be achieved. Foreign, Foreign Commissar Lito was right. From 1936, on the basis of the threat of his alternative anti-German policy, Stalin began to put feelers to the Nazis below his personal emissaries. The representative of Stalin's personal secretary, his old henchman David Kaliak, was sent as commercial attache to the Soviet embassy in Berlin to make these delegate approaches. In December 1936, Kaliski approached Dr. Schritz to own request to acquire about the possibility of enlarging Soviet-German trade. Schatz answered with the condition that this must be the ending of the Soviet-sponsored communist activity in Germany. Kalash went back to Moscow to consult Stalin about the turn of the year and given of a driven, written draft of proposing the opening of negotiations either through ambassadors or of Germans who desired in secret. The draft reminded the Germans that agreement had previously had been suggested by the Russians. On the 29th of January 1937, Kalaski with his deputy Frickenstone again visited Schack at a verbal proposal that Stalin and Moltov for the opening of direct negotiations. Schack had said that these suggestions would be passed to the German Foreign Ministry and added once more that he felt the communist agitation would have to be damped down. On the 10th of February, Nerthus saw Hitler about the proposals and wrote to Schack the next day, sensibly saying that there was no practical point in getting an agreement from the Russians' deceased communist propaganda. On the main issue, he said that there were things at the moment the Russian proposals were not worth proceeding if. However, Russia was to develop further along the lines of absolute deputism supported by the army. Meanwhile, at the Pekul try had gone ahead with the anti-Nazi implications. Even here, Stalin was able to have it both ways. General Kotskin, the German military attaché, who had been in effect implicated in the trial, was not declared a person non grata. This decision seems to be taken after considerable pressure from the Germans, that is to say at least curious. For the time being, Stalin's approaches did not bear fruit, but the point had been made the German leaders had the advantages of an arrangement put before them. Meanwhile, as Stalin's real approaches to Hitler went ahead, the non-existent contact between the Soviet High Command and the Nazis had made the subject of decisive accusations of treason. In the murky world of secret organisations, some measure of contact had already been established between the NKVD and Friedrich Heinrich. At the suppression of the German Communist Party, operations against underground remnant simply became a secret police matter. As with sophisticated operations of this type, the Nazi secret agencies left some underground communists untouched with a view of retraining political contact. Among the organisations penetrated by both the NKVD and German espionage was the Union of Tsarist Veterans. 
with main body in Paris. On the 22nd of September 1937, the NKVD was to carry out a special operation, the kidnapping and murder of General Minner, its leader. This seems to have been the attempt to put General Skolfkin, Muller's deputy, in command of the organisation. Skolfkin had long worked as a double agent with both the Soviets and the German secret agencies, and there was no doubt that he was one of the links in which the information was passed between that of the secret police and the NKVD. According to one version of the first move in the whole dark business, which was organised by Stalin, it appears to have been an NKVD story sent through Stolpen to Brooklyn in the effect that the Soviet High Command and Koreshka, remember as the leader of the Red Army, in particular was engaged in a conspiracy with German general staff. Although this was understood in the secret police circles of Germany as an NKVD plant, Heydrich determined to use it in the first place against the German High Command, of whom his organisation was intense rivalry. For Heydrich's motives in this whole business, the comprising of the German High Command ranked high, the side of which dropped into the background as an operation proceeded and does not anyhow particularly concern us. The evidence that Stalin or the NKVD planted the idea that the Germans is far from conclusive. But whatever its origins, it's simply true that it was only the atmosphere of extreme suspicion now engulfing the Soviet Union which made the idea worth pursuing from the German point of view. Meanwhile, rumours trickled in Moscow. In January 1937, the Prava correspondents in Berlin sent information that German army circles were talking about their connections in the Red Army, especially from that of Nivinska. The SP Utrecht's head of the Red Army intelligence reported daily to Stalin and Voroshov that rumours in Berlin of opposition among Soviet generals, although he himself did not credit this. The Soviet embassy in Paris sent a telegram in Moscow on the 16th of March that learned of the plans by German circles to promote a coup d'etat in the Soviet Union, using persons from the command staff of the Red Army. So you can see here that there is suspicion and there's intrigue, that we have double agents reporting back to Reidrich Heydrich, one of the highest in command in the Nazi circle of Hitler, and that these rumours are filtering about how there's double agents in that of the Red Army, particularly the decorated Russian Civil War leader here in terms of Tversky, is actually a double agent. And he could be in the pockets of Germans who are looking at trying to usurp Stalin. The possible account to which Gulworth, when the leader of the Polish Communist Party, gave his authority in the former speech, makes it out that towards the end of 1936, in a conversation with Hitler and Himmler, the pros and cons of betraying that of Cherensky and crippling the Red Army were discussed, a decision was taken. Several Soviet and other accounts made it clear by the story of the German contacts with Cherensky was originally linked by the Nazis through that of President Benz of Czechoslovakia. Benz had information as early as January 1937 and confidently passed it on to the French, whose confidence in the Franco-Soviet pact was considerably weakened by it. He also has several recent Soviet accounts agree passed on the reports to Stalin in good faith. Gumilfa tells of the false information that was planted sometime before the documentary evidence arrived so that preliminary reports of the treason were in Stalin's hands at the time of the February-March Polonium. The creation of the actual documentary evidence was an artistic job and took time. In March and April 1935, Hedrick and Berens, who later became chief of the SS in Belgrade and was executed by the Tisco government in 1946, directed the forgery of a dossier containing the exchange of letters over a period of years between members of the German High Command and that of Tversky, largely the work of the German engraver Frank Prutz. 
who had been long employed by the German secret agencies on false passports and so on. It consisted of 32 pages and attached to a photograph of Trotsky with German officials. One later Soviet book quotes a number of Western and German accounts on the forgeries of the dossier and appears to accept by Colonel Nefjoss, formerly one of Heydrich's men. This says that the German security service got a genuine signature of Terensky of 1924 secret agreement between the two high commands by the technical assistance of the Soviet Air Force was arranged. A letter was forged using the signature and Terensky's style was imitated. The letter carried genuine German stamps and the whole dossier considered off and between 15 other documents. The German signatures were obtained from bank checks. Hitler and Himmler were shown the dossier in early May and approved the operation. A photocopy was in Prague within days. Venice confirmed the existence of the plot to the Soviet ambassador on the 7th of May and on the 8th of May sent a personal secret message about it to Stalin. Heydrich's secret agent was put in touch with an officer of the Soviet embassy and showed him two pages, asking payment for the rest. The officer immediately flew to Moscow and returned with a full pardon by the whole dossier. Half a million marks were paid for, although the later turned out to be forged, and by mid-May the documents were in Stalin's hands. Possession of this definite proof of treason may have contributed to a final decision on the conduct of the blow about the generals. On the 20th of May, Dmitry Schmitz was shot in secret without further ado. On the same day, the emergency stories about the just-discovered plot began to be put about within the NKVD. An official who left Russia on the 22nd of May says the real panic was now gripping within that of the officer corps. The same day, the arrest of yet another of the leading figures in alleged plot, Edman. He was called out in the Moscow Party Conference in the House of Moscow Soviet where he had set about setting up president and taken away by the NKVD. The original pretext would have been signed a party recommendation for Cork. Like Eichmann, he was represented as having become disillusioned with the purges. After a party meeting in the spring 1937, he remarked quietly to a friend, Last night they arrested another comrade here. It seems to me he was an honest man. I don't understand. One officer describes Allah's conversation with that of Tervinsky. He was always looking gloomy. When he thus mentioned, and he said that indeed he had bad news, he had just learned of Fieldman's arrest. What a monstrous provocation, he accompanied. Terensky knew, in fact, that he was cornered. Driving to a decision on the way up to the Kurfskull, his chauffeur suggested he should write to Stalin to clear up the obvious misunderstanding. The marshal replied that he had already written. On about the 24th of May, Stalin, after consultation with Molto, and that of Vershow and that of Yesov gave the orders for that of Tervinsky's execution from the Central Committee and arrest. On his arrival on the 26th of May, Tervinsky gave a short address in the evening to the District Military Conference. One who had known him well noted that in two months since they had last seen him, his hair was starting to turn grey. He did not turn up at the next session. For he had been asked to call in at the offices of the Provincial Committee of the Party on the way up to his headquarters. After a while, difficulty he was relieving came out pale face and told his wife that Tavinsky had been arrested. On the evening on the 20th of May, news of the transfer of Tavinsky's case to the investigated organs had reached other generals, although some official confidential channel. So it's plain that the arrest of Tavinsky was no means bolts from the blue. He was interrogated by Yesov personally, aided by the new head of the NKVD Special Apartment, Levesky, and the Ambulius Yukoslov, 
now deputy head of the department. On the 29th of May, the marshal was confessing to espionage, links with the Germans and recruitment by the Rufskus in the Berkans conspiracy. Pages 165 and 166 of his testimony, when examined 20 years later, had on them forensically verifiable bloodstains. Army commander Yuzgov was the next to go. He was at a meeting in Minsk on the 29th of May when his ADC passed him a note calling him urgently to Moscow. He excused himself and went to the station where he was arrested at as he entered the train. He told his wife and daughter who were present not to worry. In the letter, Yufos detained the charges even after confrontation with Cork, but after physical methods had been applied, he too also confessed. Yerker was normally a cheerful man, a general who presents reports of him looking gloomy and distracted at a conference in the Kev military district immediately after Tiffus arrest became known to those presents. On the 30th of May, Veroshov telegraphed Yerker and ordered him to come home urgently in the meeting of the military revolutionary Soviet. He offered to fly, but Veroshov had told him to take the train, a clear indication the defence commissar knew the plans of the NKVD in detail. He took the train at 1.15pm from Kev on the same day. At dawn on the 31st of May, his train stopped at Beresk, where NKVD men boarded and arrested him. His ADC, Karakos, was not taken and Yagir was able to send a message to his wife and son that he was innocent. Yagir asked to see the warrant of his arrest and he was shown to him he asked to see an addition decision from the Central Committee. He was told that he would have to wait until that of Moscow. He was bundled into the back Maria and drove into Moscow at 100 kilometres an hour and he was lodged in a solitary cell where he was chevrons and medals were ripped off. On the 31st of May, the last of the conspirators were dealt with. It was announced the next day that the former member of the Central Committee, Yabi Garet, having entangled himself in connections with the anti-Soviet elements, had evidently feared that he would rested, had committed suicide. There were seven slightly different accounts of Karen's end. The latest Soviet one derived from his daughter says that on the 30th of May, when he visited Karev, he was sick. He was told that he was a member of the court that he would try the Tversky plotters. Burr replied that in the crime he refused and he himself was arrested. He told his wife that he knew that Tversky was innocent. On the 31st of May, Bilganer, or another account Berlin, came in and said that Gamaker had been fired. The NKVD men sealed up his safe. When he had gone, he shot himself. He was publicly attacked in Trotskyite fascist and a spy on the 6th of June. Meanwhile, in his cell, Yagir was written at once to the Petroboro, demanding immediate release or meeting with Stalin. He assured Stalin of his complete innocence. He wrote, My entire conscious life has been spent working selfishly and honestly in the full view of the party and its leaders. Everywhere I say is honest and I should die with the words of love for you, the party of the country with boundless faith in the victory of communism. Stalin wrote on this letter, scoundrel and prostitute. Verso added a perfectly accurate description. Molto put his name to this and Kervov appended for a traitor scum and next a scurrilous unseen word, punishment, the death sentence. He was instead subjected to nine days harsh interrogation at which he was told of the Yoyakvines had been arrested. The charges represented to serious so serious that in comparison the previous evidence which Yefes interrogators were now working on Schmidt appeared to arbitrarish connotations. That is, the Nazi connection was now being put forward rather than mere Trotskyite terrorism, although the official title of the conspiracy remained it, the Anti-Soviet Terrorist Military Organization. From the 1st to the 4th of June, the Military Revolution Soviet at the Commissariat of Defence 
together with members of the government, held an extraordinary session to one which Aguirre had been invited, not knowing the agenda consisted of a single item, the exposure of counter-revolutionary military fascist organisation reported on by Stalin personally. And now, after all the trouble and ingenuity which had been invested into it, he did not know how to produce the dossier. Instead, in his statement on also many interjections, he based himself on fake evidence from the repressed military men, though he abused the accused at length with agents of the Reichsmeer. He called for their execution and denounced a number of officers, including Commander Eski and Commander Kurskilf, who was head of the General Staff Academy. Army commissars Bullen and Slavin were said to have given offence to Stalin by not putting their names down to speak against the accused. However, other officers, like Central Committee members within three months later, joined in the denunciations. The dossier seems to have had its use in limiting the limited Stalin, yes, of circle, a proper sense of outrage and urgency. And since we were told that Stalin used it to instruct the judges to pass a death sentence on that of Tuvasky, it's possible that they or some of them had shown or told about the document, but it received no official use. Stalin seems to have cited that he could, after all, manage without it. And a well-tried system of confession could provide all the evidence needed. It would be awkward even in a secret court if one of the officers could perhaps have exposed the fraud through some point of an escape Yevsko's notice. And good fakes, as doubtless were, they have been nothing planned the full feeling of nuisances of Stalin's technique. It seems quite clear now, in any case, that this quick-fire court Advance higher find that the accused guilty on the basis of verbal statements of Stalin at the military Soviet without the dossier being raised. Even substantial the charges of recruitment by Nazi intelligence which were led on. Various allegations against the military have been made against the Burkhan trial, but they were all in course of evidence of various accused and no materials from the military trial itself was produced. All the accused had eventually confessed under torture. The interrogations continued right up to the morning of the trial when Tavetsky was required to implicate Korf's commander and Baskensko and others. When Vanitsky saw the accused complete the formalities, they admitted their guilt and made no complaints. Stalin, who was keeping direct personal control, saw Vyvitskis twice on the 9th of June and with multiple Kevsov and Yesev on the 11th, doubtless to give final instructions. The members of the court were tried by generals consistent in addition to that of the chairmans and also in terms of those that were high up in command. When the court opened, Ukraine stated the proceedings by asking, do you confess to the testimony which you gave at the NKVD interrogation? Although the defendants mostly confessed in general terms, Oni Prekvo, who had been in prison almost a year, admitted everything, and he said that he personally told the investigation of the names of more than 70 conspirators. Yervin denied the charge upon which the court had an hour break and then went on to the other accused. The rest admitted that they had conversations about replacing Veroshov, though denying that this had any criminal intent. Putin admitted that he had personal relations with that of Smirov, and Fieldman had the name denied. There was also charge of various military errors. As to the complicity with the Nazis, the court relied on the fact that several of the officers had connections with Germany. Kork, K-O-R-K, had military attache in Berlin. Yakir, Y-A-K-I-R, had lectured at the German General Staff Academy and Tavesky, T-U-K-H-A-C-H-E-V-S-K-Y, had negotiated on the Soviet assistance in rearming Germany, but he had said that before Hitler's coming to power. Yakir confessed in a general sense, but he was asked to confirm certain points that he could not add to his written evidence. Hired by Ukraine, in fact, the German officer attached him to the last visit in Berlin and recruited him for Hitler, Yakir's denied direct implications in espionage. 
Theresa denied connections with the Polish espionage agencies and more generally said merely that perhaps some contacts might be considered espionage. Cork remained silent when the espionage charge was put to him. Yuri said that he had not committed any espionage. Another Soviet report says the court-martial was held behind closed doors, some witnesses' statements which coincide with that of Tumensky, speaking of one of the accused about talking about his connections with Trotsky. Have you been dreaming about all this? As usual, promises have been made to the accused that confession and court would save their lives. All would be condemned to death. The military judges clearly had no real say, but it's plausible as one account based on the conversion with the assistant head of the NKVD Foreign Department, their signatures were attached to the verdict after the execution to the conference of Yetov. In any case, Stalin asked Yetov how the members of the court had conducted themselves. Yetov replied that the part most of Ukraine, only Binti had corroborated enthusiastic, with the others almost silent. This angered Stalin. Rumours of the manner of the general's end were many and various. It is reported that they were shot not in cellars but in the courtyard of the NKVD building off the Levin of Derensky Street during the daytime with NKVD trucks being revered up to the sound of the sound of the shots. Kuroshov tells that when Yakir was shot he exclaimed, Long live the party, long live Stalin. When Stalin was told of how Yakir behaved before his death, he cursed Yakir. Kuroshov reports that this long live Stalin as it was a simple case of political devotion. But the generals were not really naive enough to believe that Stalin had no responsibility for their fate. Nero was an old communist, perfectly able to carry political activity at the moment of his death. And the programme's support for Stalin combined with the combination of the NKVD was already in existence. It was on the line that maximum support for the programme opposed to the purge would be mobilised. It seems plausible to think that Yakir may have been trying, in fact, to establish an anti-Yezov platform. But it's clearly compelling we know that through his family, and it was clearly not their interest to him utter a word of defiance or abuse, he made the last appeal for them. Two days before he was shot, he sent Vyarov this letter. To Vyarov, I ask you, member, a member of many years of my honest service in the Red Army in the past, to give instructions to my family, helpless and quite innocent, should be looked after and given assistance. I address the same plea to that of Yezov. On his own copy, Vyarov made it. In general, I doubt the honesty of a dishonest person. Here's attempts to save his family was unsuccessful. His wife, his close companion of 20 years, was at once exiled to Askergam with her son Peter and their passports were confiscated. In the Volga town, they met the families of Tevishkev, Garmak and others. The boy's grandfather was hidden in the paper containing the charge against Yakir from the mother and she only saw it when Yuvova's wife showed it to her. The papers published a fake letter from that of Mrs. Yer reputing her husband. She protested it to the NKVD, which rebuffed her, and later told her that it was a threatening matter was willing to receive a withdrawal, though not necessarily to publish it. As the Red Army's best generals were dragged off to execution amid a vast campaign of public abuse, Stalin and Yezov launched the NKVD on the Osprey Corps as a whole. Four days after Tversky's execution, Brigade Commander Medovev was tried and shot on the charge of only Atrosphyite ideas, though he told Ukraine and military condoned that he denied the accusations. Within nine days after the trial, 980 officers had been arrested, including 21 corps commanders and 33 divisional commanders. 20 younger generals from the Moscow headquarters alone were also executed. Almost the whole command of the Kremlin Military School was arrested, the Front's military academy from which Cork was headed was swept by arrests. The head of its own political department was arrested as a spy. For a time, Shevardigo took over. Not a day passed without arrest of a member of the staff. Almost all the instructors went to the jails. So with what we can see here, from 
thinking about negotiating with the Nazis, developing deals that we have, rumours, suspicions, fake dossiers that are circulated. And it's added here as a trigger, a spark here to purge that within the officer corps. Anyone here who could be accused of being a Trotskyite, but also in terms of a fascist as well. So it's very much expulsion of external fascist threat. As early as December 1936, the Soviet press were speaking about the necessity of getting involved in that of the Marxist party of Catalonia and supporting that in the Spanish Civil War. It was not any real sense Trotskyite and going against the Trotskys, but particularly it was having a look at upholding that of a fascist agenda. The idea that Hitler and Mussolini was getting involved, that they were supplying arms, the Condor Legion, and now the Soviet army are wanting to help that of the republics, but it's a limited help here because we have the growing fascist threat in that of Europe. Spain's brutal civil war conflict gave the Soviet military an opportunity to test its combat readiness in the event of a big war on the continent, on Spanish soil. A faced off again an old adversary, Russian white officers yearning for revenge after dreadful events of Russia's own civil strife. So particularly, you know, the Soviet uh, Union played a decisive role in the defence of Madrid, having launched a large-scale offensive against the capital. So that was very much implemented in terms of that success. The national offensive was choked off, managed to enter Madrid only at the very end of the war, and the Republic's days then are going to be numbered. The Soviet military performed the world's first tank ram, which was something that they were quite proud of in terms of showing. So particularly in March 1938, when a Soviet BT-5 light tank found itself outnumbered by a German T-15, damage to the site and observation instruments of the Soviet machine could no longer fire effectively at the enemy. It was then that Commander Alexei Rebrod decided to turn his tank into a battering ram. The BT-5 rammed its nearest T-1, Overturning it, stunned the remaining German tanks and retreated. The Spanish Civil War is Russian Civil War 2.0. The Russian Civil War split the country into several irreparable camps, and roughly speaking, most combatants either side of the Reds or that of the Whites. After terrible bloodshed, the Red Army forced thousands of Whites to flee their homeland forever. It's never a vicious Spanish Civil War. Many Russian emergencies and immigrants eyed the opportunity to avenge Soviet Russia for their suffering. Observing how the global powers were being sucked into the conflict, they realised that the Spanish Civil War was a warm-up for even greater future conflict against Bolshevism, and it was their duty to assist. Russian volunteers who joined the Nationalist cause were given a rapturous welcome. Franco needed a command staff and who the experienced white officers fit the bill. On the 72 Russian immigrants who took part in the Spanish Civil War on the side of the Franco Knights were killed. As the victory parade took place, the Russian volunteers marched in separate columns under the flag of the Russian Empire. Military and political contexts were challenging indeed. From the beginning of the 1930s onwards, fascism was on the march both in Europe and Asia. By 1936, extreme nationalist parties and movements held sway in Germany, Italy, Austria, Poland, Hungary and Japan, amongst many others. In the face of which appeared to be many inexorable fascists tied within the international communist movement, there was much debate about the ways both to advance socialist objectives and defend democratic rights and national sovereignty. The response was a popular front strategy adopted by the Seventh World Congress of the Comintern held in the summer of 1935. This recognised that the new situation of Bolshevik-style revolution was doomed to failure and would make advances towards a social school. The working class movement had made alliances in a range of political anti-fascist forces. So the popular front strategy, both offensive and defensive, a way forward towards a socialist society, a means of defending democratic freedoms. 
At the centre of this was the need to defend the Soviet Union, the first socialist state in which many saw as Hitler's main target in his expansionist strategy. It was in this context that the Comintern's representative in Spain during this war described it as an integral part of the anti-fascist struggle which rests on the wireless socialist base. It was a popular revolution, it's a national revolution, it's an anti-fascist revolution. Nor was this clear in Spain, where a reforming government was ushered in the Second Republic of 1935, was replaced in 1933 by a brutally repressive government with fascist representation. By 1935, all progressive parties had moved and saw the need for an electrical pact and united action to defeat the right. The Popular Front parties procured a new electoral victory in 1936 and Malady progressive programme which included modest reforms affecting the entrenched interests of the church, army, big landlords and capitalist interests including those of British investors. By July 1936, the Spanish Army Officer Corps with General Franco and the Vigard rebelled and sieged a military decree claiming that the communists were about to take over power and the first act would be destroy the church. In the very days of the civil war, particularly in the big towns, an armed militias succeeded in defeating the rebels. In this stage, Jean Franco's forces facing the possibility of defeat that the civil war became an intervention against the Spanish people and their right to self-government. Franco called on his Nazi and fascist friends and asked them both for modern weaponry and trained personnel in order to overthrow the democratic elected government. Hitler Mussolini obliged with thousands of troops and airmen and copious supplies of tanks, planes and bombs. It was an intervention which turned possible defeat for Franco into probable victory, although it took further two and a half years to achieve this. Although the Soviet Union at the start of the Civil War had no diplomatic representation in Spain, it took a close interest into the developing situation. From the beginning, it expressed its solidarity with the Spanish people and the Republic government, oil with supplies, food and clothing and non-military provisions financed by workplace collections all across the Soviet Union arrived during the early weeks. The Communist Party and Soviet press led mass campaigns and organised huge demonstrations rallying the people behind the general slogan addressed to the Spanish people. Remember, you're not alone. We are here with you. From the beginning of the Civil War, the Soviet leadership proclaimed that the Republic calls for the cause of progressive mankind throughout the world. As San said in a telegram to the Spanish Communist Party, the liberation of Spain from the yoke of fascist reactionaries is not a private concern for Spaniards alone, but a common cause for all progressive humanity. But the Soviet call for international solidarity with the democratically elected Republican movement fell on stony ground in the ruling circles around the world. The governments of France and Spain backed a phony non-intervention pact This acted to prevent the Republican government from buying the arms if desperately needed from the major US oil and motor companies, provided Franco with substantial supplies of fuels and vehicles in heavily discounted terms. Only the Soviet Union and Mexico at state level with the Republican side. Throughout the Civil War, the Soviet Union provided Spain with large quantities of mainly modern weapons. On the initiative, it also put forth medical staff to as well. Given or taken in some detail, historiography of the Civil War, at least amongst mainstream historians, accepts that the Soviet Union gave impressive levels of support to the Republican cause and the international brigades represented an outstanding expression of international solidarity. But while the facts and levels of support are generally accepted, many historians and commenters question the Soviet Union's motives. We can safely ignore the views of the CIA-sponsored right-wing within its context of Clouds Orwell and claim that Stalin wanted to establish a satellite state in Spain. These claims are not backed by a shred of evidence. Indeed, they contradict about what we know about Soviet foreign policy at the time, as the strategy for international communist movement was to build an anti-Hitler alliance of nations to avert the threat of a European war and the spread of fascism. So Stalin was not internationally minded like Lenin, and he did not particularly come interested in activities of the common term. 
Stalin did not believe that the Comintern would bring about a revolution, even in 90 years. Stalin committed to socialism in one country, the idea that socialism could be built successfully in the Soviet Union without the necessity for revolution elsewhere. He thought it would make an utter folly to risk the socialist transformation of Soviet Russia for the sake of possible revolution abroad. He dismissed the potential of a foreign communist to achieve revolutionary change. In his view, one Soviet tractor is worth 10 good foreign communists. This policy line splits in the party over foreign affairs of the first time since the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. Many side with Trotsky about his idea of permanent revolution. Trotsky believed that revolution could not survive a long time in one country. Only when the revolution had spread to Western Europe could socialism be established. It not spread as it would in time to scum to the conversation on conservative Europe or undermined by Bolshevik and Russian backwardness. Trotsky and his supporters were alarmed by the way that Stalin was sidelining the common term. Trotsky argued that understand the foreign communist parties changed from being vineyards of world revolution to more than less pacifist frontier guards of Soviet Russia. Stalin, it seemed, was changing the focus of the Comintern from promoting world revolution to protecting the interests of the Soviet state. So the leadership of the Comintern reflected the situation in Soviet Union. Zevich, who was president from 1919 to 1926, when the united opposition Trotsky, Vivek and Kevich were defeated, Burkhan Stalin's allies succeeded that of Zevich. When Burkhan turned in and was forced out, this loyal Stalinist, Miltavo, succeeded him. In late 1920s, Stalin's attention was fixed very much on the struggle for the leadership of the Communist Party. In 1928, he made his left turn and moved against Birkin and the right wing of the party. As Stalin moved to the left, so did the policy of the common term. Foreign Communist parties were instructed to denounce social democrat parties as social fascists because they cooperated with bourgeois parties and governments, marrying the attack of Birkin on his cooperation with the bourgeois elements of the peasantry and the new economic policy. Probably the most damaging consequences of this new policy direction was it felt in Germany where the Communist Party was instructed to attack the Social Democrats as social fascists. This divided the left just in time when the Nazis and fascism was beginning to grow stronger. The Stalin rejected pleas for joint action by the left in Germany against the Nazis and therefore contributed to Hitler's rise of power. So particularly, we're having a look at through Stalin's foreign policy, it's about creating a collective security against fascism. So in 1933, Hitler came to power in Germany. This changed international relations in Europe profoundly, especially in regard to the Soviet Union. Hitler's anti-communist intentions were well known and the makers of Soviet foreign policy were going to have to readjust. One option was to work with other states to stop fascist expansion. Collective security was the answer. In the USSR, the shift towards could be seen in Leffel's speech in December 1933 as he identified with this policy. However, relations with Germany were never broken off, and behind the scenes between 35 and 37, there were negotiations on improving economic and political relations. Moldova, in particular, wanted to improve relations with Germany and was open critical of the policy of collective security. In September 1934, the USSR became a member of the League of Nations, once referred to Lenin as the Robert's Den. Later, was active in the League and hoped that there would be an effective Bobby. He denounced appeasement towards Germany as suicidal. In May 1935, the Soviet Union signed mutual assistance pacts with France and Czechoslovakia. The Soviet Union was obliged to help the Czechs only if France came in too. Although these pacts were good by the USSR's reputation as a supporter of collective security, neither was backed by the military talks. Little, who had no illusions, one should not place any serious hope on the pact in a real sense of real military aid in the event of war. Our security still remained exclusively in the hands of the Red Army. The French saw the pact as a political measure to scare Hitler and not an agreement which would require any military action on their part. 
In August 1935, the Comintern line of attacking Western Social Democratic and Labour parties as social fascists was completely overturned. Communists sought the help of such parties in the creation of popular fronts that aimed to contain the spread of fascism. Soviet policy was keen to support governments that pursued an anti-German pro-Soviet foreign line. Two popular governments that were formed in France and Spain, but they were not successful. In Spain, it proved an excuse for the right-wing rebellion, which began the Spanish Civil War. The nationalists whose supports included the Spanish fascists would not accept the election of the Republic's a left-wing popular front government and the Civil War broke out in 1936. The Spanish Civil War was really about the Spanish issues about foreigners saw as a battle between left and right. This made it difficult for Stalin to ignore, especially as fascists Germany and Italy were helping the nationalists. In the end, the Soviet society intervened, but the aid was given limited. Advisors were sent out rather than regular units, and equipment was supplied, planes, tanks, machine guns, clothes and medical supplies, for which the Republic was systematically overcharged. However, there was still more than neutral France and Britain had provided. Their failure to help the Republic along with Russia offered no encouragement for those like Lefel, who saw collective security against fascism as the only way forward. So where is Japan in all this? So the Soviet Union's concern about Japan is often neglected when considering Stalin's actions. Stalin, like Hitler, wanted to avoid a war on two fronts. In the war scare of 1928, Stalin saw Japanese aggression as significant danger. The Japanese invasion of Manchuria in 1931 was a direct threat to Soviet railway interests there and a potential threat to that of Mongolia, a Soviet satellite, and to in Siberia, where Soviet Union itself. A further worry was the anti-Comintern pact signed by Germany and Japan in November 1936 and directly solely against the Soviet Union. The Japanese ambassador in Berlin was an architect of the pact and Italy became its third member in 1937. In 1938-1939 there were major battles ending in Soviet victories when the Japanese tested Soviet defences. In July and August 1939 the Japanese suffered 61,000 casualties. If Soviet Union signed a pact with Germany then Hitler could persuade the Japanese to cease their attacks on the Soviet Union and danger for war on two fronts could possibly be removed. Between 1938 and 1939, the Soviet Union and the Japanese Empire fought a series of clashes along the border between Japanese-occupied Manchuria, Russian-controlled Mongolia and Siberian frontier near Russia's vital Pacific port. The prizes were rich resources of Manchuria and beyond that which the two would be a dominant power in Northeast Africa and Asia, sorry, not Africa, Asia. But even more important was the ultimate outcome of the Manchuria battles. It might be hard to believe but this all began with a few insignificant hills and steppe. Now both sides had entangled beforehand the Russia-Japanese War of 1904-1905, the new Japanese Empire dismissed by the Tsar's forces as racially in fear, sank the Russian navy, I fought the Russian army and seized a strategically important harbour of Fort Arthur. During the Russian Civil War, Japan sent 70,000 troops to support the anti-communist White Army. The Imperial Japanese forces nearly annexed Siberia before that of a drawing. So there was little loss love between each side, especially in the ultra-militaristic atmosphere of the 1930s. Japan lurched towards fascism, while Stalin built up the Soviet industry and military power for the inevitable clash with capitalism. Indeed, the Russo-Japanese conflict was in some ways a battle of minor Im mirror images. Whether it was men dying for Stalin or the Empire, both sides cared nothing for the men perish in that of the battlefield. The fuse was first lit in the beginning of the 1930s when Japan's aggressive Ketan army and used its own initiative occupied China's Manchuria territory in 1931, creating a disputed 3,000 mile frontier between Japan and Russia. 
The first serious clash of the arms erupted amongst the Shengfen incident, known as the Russians as the Battle of Le Kasan, in July 1938 when a Japanese division attacked Soviet troops on a disputed hill near that of Vladivostok. When an attack and counter-attack that together cost the sides more than 4,000 casualties, the Japanese withdrew. Le Kasan demonstrated the strengths and weaknesses of both sides. The Soviets had superior firepower and many tanks, but its leadership disseminated by Stalin's purges. The Red Army was rigid and its morale fragile. Lacking the armour and artillery firepower for its more industrial rivals like the Soviet Union, the Japanese relied on spirit and the will to win at all costs. At first it seemed like the Japanese knew best. The Soviets especially deployed 350 tanks, but nearly 100 were destroyed or damaged by Japanese anti-tank teams. At one point, a Japanese bayonet charge had rooted Soviet defenders, reinforcing the Imperial Japanese Army's belief that determined men could beat machines. With a neither side eager to start an all-out war, a ceasefire was arranged, and nearly a year later, the real test of arms came. It began in May 1939 with a clash of puppets as a fuel cavalryman belonging to the Russia's Outer Mongolia satellite entered disputed territory against the village of Novogong, which the Russians called the Battle of Kelongol only to be rejected by cavalry from the Japanese-organised Manukonko army. Due to the Soviet losses at this particular battle, it was then widely blamed on the faults of the Soviet army and leadership of Kassan, was blamed on the incompetence of Marshal Bulgner. Vasily Bulgner appeared to be leading the troops into action at the Battle of Lake Kassan and was supposed to oversee the Trezmikla military districts from the far eastern front's move to the combat readiness using the administrative apparatus that delivered Army Group, Army Corps level instructions to the 40th Rifle by Division. Particularly since he is blamed for it, he is arrested on the 22nd of October by the NKVD and is thought he was tortured to death.